So, you tithe online. Of course, we all do. Well, actually, some of us don't, but you do, and that's what matters. But let's be honest for a minute. You strive to live a life of obedience and worship and to trust God to provide for all your needs. But when the plate passes each week, nobody knows that you tithe online, but you. Sure, it's not about your neighbors seeing your generosity and giving you a well-crafted high five or fist bump or, or not of approval, but you also don't want to be judged. Every year, tens of people suffer from online tithers, plate passing induced angst, or OTPIA for short. But good news, if you're an OTPIA sufferer, your suffering days are over. Today, we introduce the I Tithe Online button. Slap this puppy on your shirt and you can let the plate pass with ease. No more wondering what her parents think. No more eye rolls, judgmental looks, and loud sighs from the Pharisees sitting next to you. No more wondering how you're gonna cover up that spit up stain on your new shirt. Slap on the button and worry about nothing. To order your iTithe Online button, please send three easy payments of $9.95 plus $27 shipping to iTithe Online, care of Spry and Spalty, First Christian Church, Decatur, Illinois, 62526. Oh, God, I love it. I, I don't know how you caught that. I only caught it this morning that is to be to, you're supposed to send to Spry and Spalty. Okay, so is he in here? He's not in there. Okay, when you see him today, call him Spryan, okay? Just call him Spryan, all Spryan Spralty, okay? Well, welcome to First Christian Church. We're a little bit crazy around here. We do crazy things. I'm very glad you're with us. Uh, for those who are guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I welcome you here to those of you in the West Auditorium and everyone in the East Auditorium. We're very glad you're with us as well. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you in the book of Matthew today. Matthew is about this far through the Bible, if you don't, uh, are perhaps unfamiliar with Scripture. Maybe you don't own a Bible, in which case you'll notice in the East Auditorium there's some folk moving around. Be glad to give it to you. Not just let you borrow it, but actually have it. Same thing here in the West Auditorium. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack. Take it home as our gift to you, all right? We'll charge it to Brian Spalty. How's that? To his budget. Anyways. So I'm aware that some in the building... Um, you might have these so-called vanity license plates, you know what I'm talking about, where they're personal. I don't like the name vanity, I, how about personalized or named, and nonetheless, you have them. As a matter of fact, there are 640,000 of them in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune did a, a story about this last year. 640,000 vehicles, 6% of the vehicles in Illinois have these vanity plates, and um, it, it costs some money. M many of them are made here in Decatur, by the way, by making county resources, which is kind of cool. But in the long run, well, apart from the money they get, uh, the money goes into the state coffers. It goes into that ever-increasingly deep hole that we don't know how low it is. But nonetheless, $5.2 million you spent as a, as a state on those um, vanity plates. I thought you should look at a few of them from around the country, kind of to set the stage a little bit. So here's some ideas of what vanity plates you could have if you wanted. Like for here, here's, for example, outside the country is what? Darth Vader. It's Alberta, the Canadians. The Canadians will get you every time. Some of you didn't catch the irony there. Watch out for the Canadians, all right? Here's another one. It is, uh, this is what you can afford if you have zero kids. <laughs> you can have a Corvette if you have zero kids, but if you have kids, probably you're not going to have a Corvette till you're like 59, maybe. All right? 
Here's one. This is more style. Cramp, that's the Morris Mini Minor. And uh, those, are, those are those tiny little mini cars that come out of Great Britain. We, when I was a kid, I remember we had one. We went on a 400-mile trip in one of them one time, as my parents and the three of us in the back seat, three kids in the back seat. You know how kids say, well, don't cross the line? There was no line. There was no room for a line. So we were in that, cramped. And then here's another one. Wait for it. That's the Washington Nationals. They're going to wait a long time to get to the World Series, all right? So, uh, you, so we, we spent $5.2 million on that here in Illinois, but uh, it's a regular fee. I think it's somewhere around $120. Is that right? I don't know exactly what the fee is, but if you go to other countries, it's not a set fee. It's how you, it's auctioned off. And so you, whatever you're willing to pay, the government is willing, willing to receive. Well, welcome to Illinois, but there you go. Uh, Man, that's twice I've slammed Illinois today, but nonetheless. Um, for example, there was a businessman in Abu Dubai in 2008 who wanted a license plate that said the number one on it. So in the auction, you know how much he spent to get that? $14 million. Now, so, I don't know about you, but $14 million seems nuts, okay? But on the other hand, if you can afford $14 million for your license plate, it probably doesn't matter in the long run, right? To them, to him, at least. And so, um, if you had $14 million, would you spend it on a license plate? It's not our culture to do that, is it, by any means? Um, what would you buy? Hmm. We're going to do something today that's going to be sensitive, I'm going to tell you right now up front. We're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about money and about financial stewardship. And so you're thinking, great, I haven't been in church since the last eclipse. And <laughs> that's a long time ago. And here, here I show up in church. Or I'm a guest and they're going to talk about money. Great. Well, if you think that's rough, you should have been here last week. We talked about marriage and divorce. <laughs> Or the week before that, we talked about forgiveness and bitterness. Here's what's going on. Back in January, we started a, a, a long series that took us from the beginning of the book of Matthew, this biography of Jesus, all the way through to the end. And um, we've just got a couple of weeks left because we did the, the, all the story about Jesus and his, his death and resurrection, which is coming up in the next few chapters. We did that in the Easter season. So we've got just a few weeks left in Matthew. And as you get toward the end of Jesus' ministry career, which is where we really are in chapter 19, the topics that Jesus is bringing up are increasingly, um, well, they're pretty pointed. And he has some very distinct ideas that he wants to bring to us. So thus, Two weeks ago, it was about forgiveness and bitterness. Last week, about marriage and divorce. Here we are this week um, talking about money. And um, I, I just, can, can I take a pastoral moment with you for just a second? And I'm aware that particularly these three weeks to of topics are incredibly sensitive. Um, I've been trying to make certain that I choose my words very carefully and intentionally and cover all of the discussion that we've been having with a whole big umbrella of grace. You've saw that and heard me explain that to you. I'm also aware that in bringing up these topics, it's easy to go from preaching to meddling. You know, you know you, you, now you've gone from preaching about grace, pastor, to now you're meddling with my business and my stuff. Well, I get all that. And I, whether, whether it be the forgiveness and bitterness, the marriage and divorce, or this week money, I'm aware that there's a lot of stuff swirling around in our lives about these things. And 
in the process, we've probably brought some issues to the surface over the last few weeks that for some here, maybe you need to have some chats about that or have a prayer with someone about it. And so please be mindful that as a pastoral staff, as I represent the pastoral staff today, if there are matters that have come to the surface as a result of these sermons, we'd really like to talk to you about it, okay? Pastor Tim specifically in pastoral care, would, would, his office door is you know, always open to these sorts of areas of discussion and kind of helping you move from one step to the next. And so uh, if we can help in any of that, in, in that way, and please let us know. And so in that regard, uh, let's see if we can approach this same topic about our checkbooks with the same sort of sensitivity and understanding and grace that we have with these other sensitive matters and see what Jesus has to say about it, okay? And so in order to do that, I, I thought I'd, I'd physically demonstrate what I want to do. I want to have a chat with you. I just simply want to have a chat and see what Jesus had to say, and then we'll go from there, okay? So we'll leave the preaching behind, and let's just see what happens here. Read with me Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, okay? A man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what, about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. He's referring to God in heaven, right? If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Well, you shouldn't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. It says do not give false testimony. That's another way of saying don't lie. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young fellow says, well, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Now, we're going to examine this guy in a few minutes, because the rest of the story gives us a little bit, a bit, a bit about his um, life approach. And apparently, uh, we're going to read that he's a man who's got a lot of resources. Uh, but before we get to what his checkbook looks like, let's acknowledge that regardless of his money, he asked a question that all of us ask somewhere along the line. He's saying, What's a, how do I get eternal life? What good thing do I have to do that's, if you will, going to guarantee heaven for me? It's a reasonable question. You've asked it, right? I, from what I understand of the studies that I've done of all the major religions in the world, each major faith group, this is a core question at the fundamentals of every faith or faith group, if you will. That life, they, they all have this understanding. Life in the body is going to come to an end. And after that, what happens? And how do I make certain that whatever happens, I get on the good side of that? How do I make certain that I'm good enough? I mean, you ask that question. When you ask that question, what do you hope for? Do you hope that you're good enough, if you will? Do you hope that the good of your life is outweighing the bad? Because you've got some things that are bad, Right? Maybe not right now, but, or maybe right now. But some time ago, some things happened that you go, man, that just wasn't good. Oh, like, like in high school, maybe five years ago, maybe 30 years ago, there was that girl, okay? And uh, you caused a lot of people, or you were part of a lot of people who really expressed a lot of hate toward her. And in retrospect, you go, man, that just wasn't right. And now she's left the state. You have no idea. There's no way to make amends. And so that bad is out there. It's not forgiven. You know what I mean? It's not, you feel like it's, it's a debt that you still owe. 
Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's not that, but it's something you failed to do. Like your grandmother. She had asked for you to come and visit more often. And you loved her, and you got there when you could, but life got in the way, but it wasn't as much as she had hoped. And she went to her grave wondering if you really cared for her. You can't fix it, right? It's, it's there. Does your good, good outweigh your bad or the other way around? You know, the, the Bible is very clear about this kind of thinking and this theology. There's no doubt, doubt about it. And if I could say one thing with great assurance today, it's this, that your good does not outweigh your bad. Well, thanks for letting me come to First Christian Church today, Wade. No, your good does not outweigh your bad. God's grace demonstrated in Jesus' death outweighs all bad, including your bad. It's only there that your bad becomes good. Your bad is forgiven in Jesus' goodness. But the young man didn't know that here in, in Matthew 19. He didn't know about God's grace. He, he's thinking, okay, so I've done some bad things. I've done some good things. What are the good things that I have to do to outweigh the bad? And Jesus gives him a list that, frankly, Jesus is speaking with hyperbole. He's giving a, him a list of things that he's never going to be able to get all the list done. He, and, and, well, what does he say? Jesus says, verse 18, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. And the young guy goes, well, I've, I'm on track with all of that. I, I, I can put a check mark beside each one of those things. What do I still lack? But I still don't feel like my good is outweighing my bad. I still don't feel right yet. Jesus adds to the list. If you want to be perfect, you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It says in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I gotta tell you, friends, this story has always bothered me. Not the discussion that it raises about money, not the discussion it raises about wealth, or the discussion that it raises about grace, or the list of right and wrong and all that. You know what bothers me about this? It's found, excuse me, it's found in verse 22. What do you think it might be? In verse 22, what do you read? You read that he's standing in front of the Son of God, and he says, I can't do it. I can't get there. I'm walking away, and he goes away sad. What story is there? What words of heartache and struggle can be found in verse 22 when, he sa when the scripture says, he went away sad? Because he had great wealth. Well, does that mean if he didn't have great wealth, he could be a follower of Jesus? Do you have to be poor to be a follower of Jesus? Is this story a condemnation of people who have wealth? I would say this, friend. If so, then all of us here today, we're in trouble. Because regardless of what you have in your bank account, whether it be $1.17 or $117,000, whatever you have in your bank account, still we as people who live here today in the U.S., as we see the U.S., we're wealthy people. You say, well, I don't have a lot of money. I know you may not have a lot of money, but compare yourself to the rest of the world outside of the Western world, okay? Or compare yourself to the rest of human history. I mean, what do we have? We can read and write. That's based on the wealth of our nation that we can 
give education to people. We have roads to drive on. We have cars to drive. And maybe you're not driving a high-dollar car, but if you've got a car, you can get from one place to another at 45 miles an hour, which is just, from, in terms of the rest of human history, unheard of. To go from here to Blue Mound 100 years ago. I mean, that was a three-day event, right? Down, spend the night, and back. I mean, it was... Whereas we can go there and back six times in three hours if we wanted to. We're, we're wealthy. We stay in, we go in buildings that are heated and cooled. We have health care. The list goes on. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilt. I'm trying to help us understand that we are, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the world and particularly to human history, we are well off. So does that mean if you live in the kind of places where we live, we don't get to follow Jesus? Hmm. Can I give you some observations from the story today? And then once I've given you some observations of this interaction between Jesus and, I think he's a young 20-something. If After those interactions, some responses to it, okay? So here's some observations. That this story is about life focus. It's not about money. See, a follower of Jesus needs money. I, we, we, we need resources. But those resources that we have have to come under, they can't just be out there by themselves, they have to come under the goal of serving Jesus Christ. That's because we know that our stuff, the things we have, our money, our houses, it all, whatever we have, our cars, our health care, our education, it can all mess with our spirituality. Because you know what? If it's not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that stuff, we end up looking at what do I have to do? And that's what this young man's dilemma. He wanted to know, what do I have to do? What's the checklist of stuff that I have to do in order to um, say that I warrant everything I've got? Instead of just resting in what God has already done. Because the best life focus is this. Trusting God. Trusting God. I am... Um, Today I want to tell you a, couple, a few stories from the personal life of our family. Uh, in this area, because, because this is such a sensitive matter, I don't, I'm, it's, it's with, some, with some reluctance that I tell you these stories, but I, I, I'm saying that, giving them to you and I hope that you'll see the transparency and understand that this is, how, this is where the rubber meets the road for families, isn't it? And for households, whether you're married or single or a kid in college or high school, you've got to figure this stuff out. So can I tell you sort of where Les and I are on this? That this business of trusting in, trusting in God for the resources that we need. In 1983, Leslie and I graduated from college. It's a long time ago now. And... Um, you know, we, we married in school. We spent the last two years married. Uh, we married and we had two years left to go. And then, so we were really poor. I mean, really poor. I'll tell you another story in a few minutes, but to explain to you how poor we were. But when we, when we graduated, we got jobs, both of us. We were in a traveling band. And here's what life was like. We got on a bus every morning. You've seen those buses that musicians live in. And we got on a bus every morning and somebody drove us two or three hundred miles from one gig to the next gig. That meant the band was responsible to provide us with lunch. And when we got to the venue for that night, whoever was sponsoring that night's concert was to provide us with dinner. Then somebody provided us with, a, with, a, with housing for the night and breakfast the next morning. We'd get back on the bus and we did that. 
for five years we did that, okay? And so, frankly, it was pretty good for us from a financial point of view, simply because all our needs were taken care of, literally. All we had to pay for was whatever clothes we wanted to wear on our back that weren't, they even paid for our stage clothes. Okay, so what clothes do we want to wear during the day? What did we want to buy if we stopped at a 7-Eleven, the bus pulled into 7-Eleven, did you want an extra snack or whatever, and pay for our health care? That's all our responsibilities were. When we finished school, I remember we had this incredibly high school student loan. It was $3,200, which is not significant compared to people these days, but for us, $3,200 after two years of being married was a huge amount of money, and we were broke. Except May came along, we got a salary, no expenses. June came along, a salary, no expenses. July came along, August. Suddenly, we've got money, we can pay off the loan. And then we heard that some friends of ours were looking to buy a house. And as they got down to the wire, they realized they were $1,000 short in their down payment. And we're about to write the check to pay off the $3,200, and we said, Let's give them this $1,000. Just give it to them. Now, $1,000 is a lot of money now. But let me tell you, in 1983, for a couple of broke college kids who had been broke, it was, a, it was huge. But you know what we learned through that? It's not about how mu- our stuff, how much stuff we have. Frankly, we have more stuff than we need now, do you? You have it in your basement, don't you? Don't you have it in your, you're not invited to my basement. Don't ever come to my basement because I'm embarrassed about how much stuff is down there, okay? We are blessed with more, and I don't know that we ever, did we miss that $1,000? No, we paid off the $3,200. Here's what we learned. This is early in our married life together. That if we listen to the call of God upon our lives, we were a couple kids in our 20s, and it shaped who we are to this day. It shaped who we are. Sadly, the young man in Matthew 19 didn't understand this. You know why? Because he, he didn't understand that if you don't trust God, no trust is going to come out and play out. With, you're going to squander opportunities that come your way. This man could have accepted Jesus' challenge to change his life, to change his life focus from money to others. His sadness could have been switched out for a better income. See, friends, it's not that money is the struggle. It's not that stuff is the struggle. Frankly, it's what you do with your stuff and your money. Can I, let me tell you another story of um, how you as a congregation, we as a congregation, trusted God for an opportunity that I was a little bit freaked out about, but we did it together and it worked out. Here's, let me set it up this way. For decades, our congregation has been involved in ministry in Kenya. We had people from our church living there, working there permanently. They're still there today. And um, that had been the case beginning from the mid-1980s through to 2010. 2010, uh, the leadership of the church said, maybe we need to do more than just send money over there. Should we be sending people in terms of work teams and medical teams? Let's figure that out. So a group of us, not a dozen people, but... Eight or nine of us went over to Kenya and kind of did a, a discovery trip. And we were literally out in the bush, okay, where, where, the, where, where we had this building out there. Uh, it was one of the first permanent buildings that was built out there in the bush. And there are huts all around made of cow dung and straw and dirt floors. I mean, if you can knock on the wall and you know what you're knocking on, okay? So you're there and there's a fire in the middle, 12 by 12 are all the huts, okay? So these are people who have lived this way for 
hundreds and hundreds of years, goat herders and sheep herders, shepherds. We had that built in the 80s, and so we're out there, and um, about half a mile across the field, there's no, no roads, no fences, but half a mile across the field, uh, we learn that there's one, a man over there who's a follower of Jesus who's sick, an older man. He wants to know if that group that's from America, would they come pray along with the pastors from Kenya that were there? So we said, sure. So we, there's two Jeeps pull up. Of course, it's, it's not very far, but it's, you know, it's worthwhile getting in a vehicle, okay? But we get in the vehicle, and there's more of us that will fit than will fit in the two vehicles, two Jeeps, and everybody hanging on. So I said, well, there it is. I don't mind walking. I'll walk over there. I'll, I'll get a head start and see you guys there in 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, I don't see any hyenas, so I should, I'll probably be pretty good. And a young Maasai man early 20s, says, Pastor, can I walk with you? I've never met him before. So, yeah, we walk together, and on the walk, we discover, he tells me, that he, his father was the first man amongst the Maasai tribe who came to Christ as a result of our ministry. And that he, as a result, had, was the first little boy that, if you will, had been raised in the church, the first of that generation. And um, I said, so what do you do? Because, you know, the, the young guys there, they're, they're shepherds, and they they take care of their, their sheep and their, their goats and their, their cows. And, and he says, well, I'm a school teacher. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't you know you guys sent money and you got it so that we could go to school? And I went to school. I went to high school. I went to college. And, and I teach chemistry. What? You're the kid who grew up in a dung hut and you teach chemistry? You've come a long way, so to speak. You know what I mean? And I'm walking along and says, so you teach chemistry. And he goes, yeah, but it's not what I really want to do. What do you want to do? I want to go to med school. Really? Yeah, I've already been accepted, but I can't go because I don't have any money. And I'm going, great, why did this kid have to walk with me? Why couldn't it have been one of the shepherds? And I'm listening to him talk about how, yeah, I've been ex- he's been accepted to med school. He's got the smarts. He's got all the stuff that you need to go to med school except no money. And here's this white guy walking with him from mid-America going, oh, great. What am I going to do with this? So we went and prayed for the old man and came back to the States, and um, I invited you to step into a risk with me. You may remember this. This is 2010. We said, let's send Daniel Kodotoy to med school along with two people to nursing school as well. And we knew the price was going to be for that full education be about $60,000. It seemed like way more money than we should raise and that we should raise about $35,000 to get him started. All right? That was the plan. We did. You graciously gave the church $35,000 and off we went on this big adventure together to see what would happen in this young man's life and in a man, another man and a woman to go to nursing school. Well, I can't explain this. I don't know how this happened, but word has gotten around the country. We've never told anyone about it purposely, but people outside the life of our church from around the country have heard over and over again that we're doing this. We're at the end of it. We were supposed to run out of money years ago, but do you know what? People keep sending us money unsolicited, and we're at the end of it. He's now, he he led our medical team have you got a photo of him? Have we seen a photo of him yet? Here he, here he is, okay? That's him right there. And here's this kid from a cow dung hut leading our medical team in Kenya last month, okay? 
And uh, there's now talk, well, he should go on and become a cardiologist or an oncologist. And you think about what's amazing to me, just from a financial point of view, I didn't know we weren't going to come up with $60,000. We said thirty-five, But people keep sending us money. Weird. Out of nowhere. Do you know we're at the end of the, at end of the run and I think we've still got $11,000 left over. Now, I don't know how that works. But now the question is, okay, think about the thousands of lives that are going to be impacted through Daniel as a result of our willingness to say, hey, we'll, we'll take a run. We're, we're going to trust God and in doing so, we're not going to squander the opportunities. Sadly for this young man in Matthew 19, that wasn't the case. Here's why. I think his past, his past, which frankly, his past seems to be pretty good. He had a lot of money, but his past prevented a future adventure. Money was baggage that he had to carry. It's luggage. And I don't know that, you know, I would suspect most of us don't have that sort of luggage. We don't, we don't say, well, you know, we had so much money when, we, when I was growing up that it's been a problem in my life. I don't know many people say that. But on the other hand, a lot of us would say, I was so poor when I was growing up that money is still a problem in my life because we want it and we worry. Or perhaps it's not that altogether, but it's the, am I ever going to be good enough? Does my good outweigh my bag? And that's, does my good, pardon me, outweigh my bad? And that's the luggage we carry in the baggage? I want to remind you, friends, your baggage of yesterday has already been taken off your hands by a heavenly porter. That porter named Jesus Christ showed up with a, a big cart, a big dolly, eight, six, eight-wheel dolly, and loaded all the stuff of your yesteryears and wheeled it away from you. The two outstretched arms of Calvary, bleeding, took care of all your baggage. There's a new adventure waiting. You can live a new life, even a life of generosity. And if that's the case, let me give you just a few ideas about what the Bible says about generosity, not just about this story, but generosity as a whole. First of all, when it comes to understanding what the Bible says about how we manage our resources, the focus is always on attitude, not numbers. If you focus on the numbers only, like how much do I have to give in order to be uh, good enough, that's a problem. Because then you're back to the story of this young man. You're giving, give me a checklist of what I need to do. What do give me a, a checklist so I can say, now I'm generous. Biblical generosity is always about attitude. The Old Testament certainly has some numbers. The Old Testament has an expectation that those who follow God are going to live on 90% of their income and give 10% of their income to God's work. The, the language we use is tithe, okay? It's called a tithe. That's an expectation. I'll say it straight up. That is an expectation of all people who follow God. But the New Testament goes beyond that. That's why generosity is about an attitude, not numbers. Because within the context of the New Testament... Jesus' followers always understand that we don't, we don't own anything. We simply steward what God has loaned to us. And if we can live there, then we don't worry about numbers. We worry about attitude. Again, not to be a hero, but Les and I have had this approach all of our lives. We've always started with a tithe. We've always started with 10% of our income and then asked, with that already in play, how can we be generous? And we've done that when we were poor, and I'm not so poor anymore. I get that. I'm... I'm in my 50s, you know, life is, I'm catching up with life, finally. You know what I mean? 
But we've never wavered from saying, what will we do to be not just tithers, but to be people who are generous? I recall um, one day, again back in college, when we got up and looked in our checking account. We didn't have a savings account, but that was for... We had a checking account only, and it, it had... Now, the, my memory is $1.17. Leslie remembers $1.49. I don't know. It's a swing of 32 cents. It's not going to make much difference, right? There was, there was very little in the, in the... Less than two bucks in the account. No money. And you opened up the pantry for dinner that night, and there was not going to be any dinner. We didn't know what we were going to do. We'd been generous. Not to, we don't give to get, but we'd always assumed that we could trust God. Went, to, went off to classes that day, and at the end of class one day, Leslie's prof, one of her main profs said, hey, Les, would you, um, would you come by my car after class today? God spoke to me about you. Well, that's weird, isn't it, when your prof says, God's been talking to me about you? Great. What does this mean, a C minus or something or other? Ahead of time? I, so, sure enough, we drove up to her car after class that day, and she said, God told me to empty my pantry and give it all to you. We opened up her trunk and there was all the food that she had canned all summer long and all the groceries she bought and she just loaded it and put it in our car. Here's what I learned that day, that her generosity proved that our generosity was honored by God. Not to give to get, but to say, God, it's all yours in the first place. And I gotta say, that doesn't mean that, well, I'm immune to not wanting. I mean, I, there are things, just because you're generous doesn't mean you don't want some things. Can I tell you some things I want? Like we have a lovely home, but I'd really like a second home on the beach in North Carolina. <laughs> Anyone up for that? Right? Just, just a home, well, not just a home in North Carolina on the beach. I'd really like a Swiss chalet in the mountains as well. I'd like a cabin about 45 minutes from Decatur here, out by a stream with a little woods and the deer standing right there and go and write sermons so I can just dazzle you all. So that's one, two, three, four. And I'd like a fifth house. I'd like a house that overlooks Sydney Harbor Bridge in Sydney, Australia. I mean, if I'm going to dream, I might as well dream big, right? But it's not about all of that. Here's what I'm aware of. That in the midst of generosity, in the midst of saying, okay, God, there are still things I want to accomplish. If I'm a person who follows biblical generosity, that biblical generosity is going to highlight Jesus' leadership in my life. Christians have a fancy word for it. We call it lordship, but in, basically it means that he's in charge of our lives. And the depth of his lordship, the depth of his leadership has got to go all the way through who we are, including our pocketbooks and our Excel spreadsheets looking at our financial futures and returns on investments, right? We've got to allow his leadership to have control over every aspect of our lives and I would say, friends, I'll say this with some boldness, that if you are not in a place where God is in control over those Excel spreadsheets, that I have to question, hear me carefully, I say this with sensitivity, but if he's not in charge of that, I have to question the depth of your spirituality. Because if we say we are followers of Jesus Christ and he is in charge of our lives, how dare we hold off just a portion of it? However, when you get that aspect of Jesus' leadership engaged in your life, you know what you end up with? incredible peace. Not necessarily more money, that's not the point. But what you end up with is um, you make choices 
in a way that allowed God to be in charge. And I'll tell you this, that in making those choices as a result, we're never in a place of awkwardness, that when a giving moment comes along, we don't have to give, we, we, we never have to give out of neither compulsion nor guilt. We say, hey, we've already, we've already accomplished this business of the attitude of God, everything we have is yours. And if an event comes along or a situation comes along that we feel, okay, this warrants our, in, our investment on God's part, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And there's no walking out of the event going saying, man, we should have given money. We didn't give it. No. It simply is we don't give out of compulsion nor out of guilt. You know why? Because it's already taken care of. So, to help all of us, you know that if we do sermons around here, one of the goal in making us devoted followers of Jesus Christ is that we want to be certain that we put an aspect of biblical living into practice in our lives every week. So today, it seems to me the best thing I could do would help you become generous, right? You go, great, Wayne. I didn't want to, I'm willing to listen. Now you're talking. All right, so let's see what we can do. If you get your bulletin out today, and if you don't have one, in both rooms today, there are people coming around that are going to give you a bulletin, okay? Because we want to push you to look at something with me today. On the inside flap, and we need everybody to do this. Here's why. We're going to ask some people, we're going to ask everybody to fill this out because for some people, this is going to be a big step. And we're going to put all these things in the offering plate. And in light of the video you saw earlier, we don't want people to think, well, that person's not been giving and now they're choosing to give. So we're just all going to put something in the offering plate today, okay? So maybe what we're suggesting is that you would choose to become a person of generosity. And if you already are, are then put your name and say, I already am living a generous life. I'm, I'm at peace with it. If you're not, you say, you see something, a um, check mark at the bottom says, I'll start practicing generosity through tithing or giving. It's on the inside flap of your bulletin, okay? I think, do we need some more down front here? We need some more down front guys, sorry, okay? All right? And here, here I don't, I'm not trying to be gimmicky in any way, but I'm fully convinced that if you're not yet practicing generosity and you'd like to step into it, I want to back you up. Not, not in some silly way, but in a way that says, I'm absolutely convinced this works. And so we're saying that if you are stepping into generosity and you've never done that before, you go, uh, how am I going to, what if it doesn't work? I'm so convinced it's going to work that if it doesn't work in 90 days from now, let us know. We'll give you all your money back. Straight up. No questions asked. Uh, we've done this before. We've never had anybody ask for money back. Everybody, I mean, you talk to people who've walked this and, and tried this exercise with us before, and you go, when you can't believe it, it's just working. I'm convinced it works, friends. I'm convinced that if you follow God in these areas, again, not giving to get, but giving to say, okay, we're gonna, this is a new attitude we're going to take on. And uh, if this is a, a challenge for you in some way that you go, it's scaring, scaring the living daylights out of me, we'll back you up, okay? We'll, we'll say, try it, for, try it for 90 days and we'll see what happens. All right? So fill that out. The offering's coming in a minute and you can put it in the offering plate. But in the meanwhile, can I pray for you, please? Lord, we would come to you today in the name of Jesus Christ and uh, we look at the story of this young man and him walking away from the Son of God sad because he couldn't get, he couldn't get his arms around how this could work. That in an effort to follow you that everything he had would belong to you. Sometimes God, we're like that. We want to hold, hold, hold. And Lord, the reality is there are bills to pay and 
there are, are commitments we've made that we want to honor. And that's all good. And um, Sometimes, Lord, we've all lived in the place where at the end of the month, there's a whole lot month left versus a, whole, a lot of money. Sometimes, Lord, it's the other way around. We have money left at the end of the month, but sometimes, God, it's month left at the end of the money. And uh, we're working it all out, God. But in the reality and in the practical areas of life like this, give us courage to live in a way that is different than the culture around us, but to live in a way that is full of great generosity before you. And uh, as we step into this adventure, uh, even with questions, we're going to rely on you in Christ's name. Amen. So, I don't expect the offering to be different today in terms of money or anything like that, but perhaps if you would consider participating in this with us today, this fill the card out, put in the offering as the ushers come. The Lord bless you.